Judges 13.1, Scripture says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine nor strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Verse 8, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to teach us, uh, come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to meet me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? All right, so I'm going to leave off there tonight. We're going to pick right back up, God willing, next Wednesday night. But what we just read is a major shift in the history of Israel during that season. This reads to us as the story of Samson. It can read to us as Bible history. But I want you to get the prophetic significance of what's going on in this. And I'm going to set it up a little bit for you. The rest of the messages are kind of blood and guts and gore and fun. You know, they're just kind of high adrenaline stuff. This one really needs to capture our minds. And so let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit just to get our minds around this because it's very important to the rest of the series. So you pray for you, I'll pray for us. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you and we ask that you would just release the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit as he moves about the room tonight. I pray there would be oil on what I'm about to say. Lord, it doesn't have the hydraulics of um, an intense message. So let our minds not wander. Let our bodies not um, just get too weary. I'm praying, Holy Spirit, come now. Bring light. Bring illumination. Put some flavor on this thing so that it is tasty to the soul tonight. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that there are parallels in our lives to what was going on in the life of Manoah and his wife and in the life of, of Israel of old. And so, God, I pray that as we go through these verses, for those that need a shift right now, 
for those that have no indication whatsoever that you're in the mood to change their situation, for those that may even have given up and have assigned themselves to a perpetual desert-like existence, I pray, Father, that you will quicken their faith right now, that you'll show them right now that you reserve the right to bust in on a Wednesday evening and reinvigorate their faith that you're the God who never stops working on their behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's go back up into verses 1 and 2. Let me give you the context here. The context here for Israel was that they were in a long season of loss. This is not a good season for the nation of Israel. They are trapped in this cycle of um, stepping into sin, getting in trouble because they did it, calling out to God for deliverance, getting delivered, doing good for a minute with God, and then going right back to their sin. And this is happening over and over and over again. So God has been raise, raising up judges, and but they've been in this cycle for, for literally decade upon decade upon decade where everybody's doing what is right according to their own understanding. The old King James, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so everybody's a law unto themselves, and there is no... Um, long-standing obedience, commitment, and faithfulness to God. And so this is a long season of loss for them, and it's characterized in verse number one at the beginning by a, a season of spiritual rebellion. Let your Bible define what was going on right before Samson was born. It says, the people of Israel again, if you write in your Bible, circle it, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, let's just not skip past this. This is the Holy Spirit's characterization of the days surrounding the birth of Samson. Israel was repeating what had been done for generations, and the what, the what that they were repeating is described as evil. Now, that's a word that we've lost in the last couple of decades here in the United States of America because we're not comfortable with moral declarations. So we don't believe in good and evil anymore. And so we've reframed and introduced a whole new vocabulary. But let me just go ahead and bust that bubble. Evil is still evil. And evil is defined oftentimes and sometimes explicit and clearly in Scripture um, by actions that defy the character and the desire of God. And so what we're seeing here is not just a general evil, but, um, and, and not just a kind of a blip of evil, but a culture of evil. Now, I, don't, I didn't bring you here out tonight and call you to come to the sanctuary so I could depress you, but just in case you didn't know, you and I are existing in a culture of evil. Six of us believe that. The rest of you are saying, I don't know about that. No, we are living in a present culture of evil. And um, doesn't mean we're going to lose the battle. It doesn't mean revival can't come, but that's where we are right now. And this repetition, the cycle that we keep getting into in America, um, I feel like we've been in an unbroken cycle uh, for decades, with the exception of a couple of minor awakenings around like 9-11 and things like that, when for like three days and four hours we came together and called out God and joined arms and sang and had prayer meetings, and then the nation went right back to the evil. It's exactly the way it was for ancient Israel at that time. But notice this, the, the word characterized it as doing the evil in the sight of the Lord. And uh, men like to do their, their evil deeds in the darkness, but it doesn't matter whether it's daylight or darkness, God's omniscient eye was watching what was going on across the national fabric of Israel. And so that was a season 
of spiritual rebellion. This entire nation, though there were probably holy people in the midst, there was always a remnant, but the characterization of the entire, entire nation was that they had, were shaking a collective fist in the face of God Almighty. And that never turns out well for people, by the way. It just doesn't work. I know that we, um, our culture probably thinks that God's, if, if they believe in God at all, is giving us a free pass on this. But listen, God never allows uh, sin to go unpunished. If it persists, so will his judgment at some point. You depressed yet? Because we've got a little further to go. But let, just stick with me. It was also a season of national oppression. The beginning of verse number one and the end of verse number one, they're connected. It's almost a cause and effect. The Bible says the Lord gave them. Watch that. The Lord, their covenant God, gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. For 40 years. Okay, so because Israel was in this collective, unending cycle of rebellion, repentance, restoration, and then right back to rebellion, God had reached a point uh, in the life of the former judge, Jephthah, and, and coming up to Samson, that, that he was just like, I'm just going to let you reap what you sow. For 40 years. I want you to think about that. Most of us in the room have eclipsed that 40-year mark. I'm 40, I'll be 48 in a week or two. And um, so I'm going to go back to third grade at Lilburn Elementary. Third grade in Miss Morgan's class in Lilburn Elementary. And that would be the moment on my life spectrum that the Philistines come in. And so for third grade and fifth grade and middle school and all of high school and all my wandering years and getting saved at 24 and married at 27 and becoming a father at 30 and a father again at 35 and pastoring and all of that, from that third grade moment until the present day, it's the Philistines coming in oppressing. And nobody got to blame the devil. This would not be a case where the devil would get the blame. You know why? Because the Bible says God sent the Philistines. God actually just took the protection off of Israel, the apple of his eyes, and it's not that he loves the Philistines, but he's going to use the devil to do his work. And so the, the Lord literally put them into the hand of the enemy. Why? Because he's cruel? No, but because he loves them. He loves Israel. He didn't send the Philistines because he's a cruel, unfeeling, you know, just vengeful God on the people of his covenant. No, he loves them and they need to be broken. They have to reap what they sow and they need to reap it in a way that is greater than the previous seasons when they reaped it. And so for 40 years, so that means that grandparents, parents, and grandchildren had not known a day, those children had not known a day in, in their entire lives, and those grandchildren, where the Philistines weren't in control. That means that they would let the, the Israelites have their freedom. They could live, they could work, but they would pay heavy taxes, heavy tribute. There would be violence in the land. It would be literally, um, don't step out of line or the Philistine armies would dominate you. Now, let me give you this real quick. I don't have time to go into who exactly the Philistines are, but let me tell you that there were five primary Philistine city-states that were in that area, and each one of those city-states had their own king, and they were somewhat independent, their own ruler. They were somewhat independent of each other, but their military um, and their governmental power was kind of one. So you've got, you've got the Gaza, you've got Ashkelon, you've got Ashton, you've got Ekron, and you've got Gath. And so you've got these five city-states, and they are dominating God's people. Very quickly, if you learn anything from ancient Israel, learn this. God loves you 
But because he loves you, if you persist in rebellion, he will allow life to become very unpleasant for you. That's not a popular teaching, especially in the day of hyper grace where God's the big chuckling, smiling grandfather who just kind of turns a blind eye to the mischief of his children. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is holy. The God of the Bible is kind and glorious, but he is jealous. And when his covenant people are bringing reproach on his name, because you'll find out in the story of um, Samson, what had happened is the God of the Philistines, Dagon, was now the prominent God, and the Philistines would not believe in the God of Israel because the God of Israel wasn't delivering the Israelites from Philistia. And so they thought, well, our God must be greater than the Jews' God because our God is allowing us to dominate these people. And so what God does is when his name is besmirched, he will allow trouble to find people, and he did that with Israel. And so let's take it from the macro to the micro view. So in the midst of this oppressed people in Israel, in the midst of spiritual rebellion, in the midst of um, the Philistines dominating pretty much every part of the culture, you've got this couple. And so what we're going to see is it was a season of personal struggle. Remember this with me. In this big macro 10,000-foot view of Israel being bad and the Philistines coming in and kind of being the, the disciplining hand of God for that season, you've got people that are trying to live. You've got people that are probably crying out to the Lord. Not everybody in Israel is evil and wicked and rebellious. And here we're going to see a very simple couple, Manoah and Mrs. Manoah. She's not even named, but they're going to become the parents of Samson. But look at how they're living right now. So the Bible says in in verse number two, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Dan whose name was Manoah. And this is all it says about his wife. His wife was barren and had no children. Now, that's not only a tough thing for any woman, but in ancient Israel, if you weren't able to have children, and even if if all you had was girls, because of their culture at that time, very patriarchal culture, if you couldn't provide a baby for your husband in ancient Israel, the common theme was, well, you must have done something to offend God. And it was a terrible thing in that day for a woman not to be able to bring a man-child into the world. And so here is Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, and they've been married for a while, and they've they've got no children. So again, I'm I'm trying to make it as depressing as it actually is, but I'm, you know, the temptation is to to soften it. But let's just let it be what it is. This is this is the age that Samson was about to be birthed into. So absolute evil in the land by people who had been given so much in covenant from God. Dominance from a pagan um, culture, the Philistines, dominating for four decades every part of national life in Israel. And then in the midst of it, you've got a woman and her husband that just want a baby and can't. And so when the spotlight comes down on Manoah and his wife, they're among the saddest folks at that time. They have nothing. They're literally existing. They're getting by. And this is the couple that God says, you too. I'm going to send the deliverer through you. I'm going to pick you, the lowest in a low land at a low season, and I'm going to come privately to you through my visitation and I'm going to initiate a shift. That's the point. 
that in the midst of no visible hope, in the midst of no precursors that breakthroughs about to happen, in the midst of four decades of seeing, hearing, feeling the exact same thing, the, the aroma of hopelessness in the land, on a day of his own choosing, God says, well, we're about to shift things. Why is that important? What does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with us as children of God. Because the Bible speaks so often, New Testament, Old Testament, it speaks so often about the calling on our lives as followers of Jesus Christ who are indwelt by the Spirit of God that we are called to press on. We are called to endure. We are commanded not to give in to the weariness in the, uh, in the midst of doing what is right before the Lord. We are promised that in, at the back end of humility, there will be an exaltation by the hand of God. And this is my personal belief. You do not have to agree with me on this. I think it's biblically founded. But I believe that probably, if not the most, it may not be the most, faith may be the most important component to um, experiencing breakthrough. But right beneath faith, and they're attached, is endurance. Listen, it's not going to sound spiritual, but it is. Never, 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 never quit. You just never, 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 never quit. It doesn't mean God can't realign you. It doesn't mean he can't redirect you. That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about quitting, I'm talking about that internal posture of the heart that just says, it's never going to change. I'm stuck. This is my lot in life. I no longer expect God to initiate a shift on my behalf. And brothers and sisters, sometimes faith is simply refusing to cross that line I just described. You may not be surging. You may not be the bionic believer. You not, may not be the walking on water, you know, New Testament saint. But there are moments in our life where God is pleased when he understands the Philistines have been set loose in our life. When he understands that there is dryness and, and dearth and hopelessness and impossibility and there's no visible indicator that things are going to shift. Sometimes it brings great pleasure to his heart when he looks at one of us and our simplicity and we just say, God, life isn't all that great, but you are awesome. You are so good. Lord, I, I'm not blaming you, but I would love for you to change all of these circumstances. But if you don't, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to bed at night. I'm going to praise you for what you did today. I'm going to wake up tomorrow. And I'm going to start my day again with praise. And sometimes, friends, that's faith. We, we like to think of faith as casting out 40 demons out of, you know, somebody we see on a street corner. You know, that, that's, that, that may be faith, but sometimes faith is not spectacular, we live in the day of neon and spotlights and everything's on, plastered on social media. And, and it leaves us with this idea that if it's legitimate, it's got to be, you know, awesome. It's got to be amazing. It's got to be astounding. Sometimes the pleasure of God proceeds from his infinite heart when he just looks at you and you don't have any human reason to, to worship and praise him. Nothing within you emotionally motivating, but you just choose to press through anyway. And I don't know what was going on with Manoa and Mrs. Manoa, but I know one thing. Um, out of the blue, God was about to just, about to switch this thing. He's about to do a 90-degree turn on them. So let's get down into this because that's the depressing part. Here comes the good part, all right? You made it. Hallelujah, you made it through the gloom and the doom. All right, so let's go down to verses 3 through 7. 
And here is where we begin to see the unexpected elevation of hope. God wants to raise their hopes. And he initiates it. He moves towards them. What does it look like? Well, first of all, let's get really supernatural here because how many of you know the Bible is full of the supernatural? You know that, right? Do you? Okay, because it still is. I promise you. Read it. It's good. It's it's all in there. Um, It starts with angelic interruption. So watch this because when we're reading this at the beginning, um, it just sounds like God sent an angel. But I got to go ahead and tell you, if you read the rest of the chapter that I didn't read, it's not just an angel from God. It's God. This is a theophany. This is God coming in the appearance of a man. And so I'm going to tell you that ahead of time so that as you're listening and watching this before it's um, addressed in the next message, when it's talking about the angel of the Lord here, it's actually talking about the Lord. So what does that look like? The Bible says the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, (laughs) Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Um, I, I, I like the way God operates sometimes. So the Lord's about to initiate a shift. There's no, hey, how are you? What's your name? You're precious. How are you doing today? You are awesome. You know, you look a little down. It's, it is literally the, the angel of the Lord. The Lord appears in a theophany, and he just speaks, just says this. He says, you are barren. You will have a boy. No, no pretense. No fluff, no ornaments. Us type A people, we like talk like that. You know, none of the niceties. Let's just get straight to the point. And I love the fact that the Lord, in in this, what appears to be an angel visiting, and so I'm going to call it an angelic interruption, but it's really the angel of the Lord. A lot of times in the Old Testament when you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, you have to let the context of that passage tell you if it's an actual angel or if it's the Lord himself. This one is the Lord himself. But it's, a, it's literally a heaven-sent message with this, if you want to call it a prophetic word or a word of knowledge, it is just a dictate. It is a dictate from heaven saying, here's what's about to happen to you. Let me just ask you something. Let's just, let me, I'll, I'll put on the pastor's hat for a second. You know that thing you've been talking to the Lord about a long time and it hasn't manifested, it's not quite done yet, it hasn't happened yet, it's not fixed yet, it's not broken through yet. You know that thing? Um, that was her thing. Her thing was no baby. Her thing was the cultural stigma attached to that. Her thing was the heartbreak every time she saw one of her neighbors with their third kid, and she didn't get one. And so I want, I want to make sure we leave the personal and emotional um, intensity of this right there where it belongs. So she's getting the answer to the need that she's been living ever since her wedding night with. When am I going to have a baby? When am I going to have a baby? When am I going to have a baby? Months go by, years go by. We don't know how long it is. No baby. And the angel comes and says, you are barren currently, but you're not going to be anymore. You're going to conceive. And by the way, the baby you conceive is going to be a son. But it gets better. It gets better. Y'all are tired. Y'all, y'all aren't getting this yet, but that's okay. Come on. I'm one of the, if you're new here, I'm one of those preachers that really doesn't get offended if you talk back. It kind of, it does make the service go longer, but it will, it'll encourage me. So here's, here's the thing, though. With the promise comes instruction. 
Because when, when God's going to deposit something precious into your life, he wants to make sure you steward it well. And so he gives precise instruction in verse 4 and 5. So he says, you're going to have a baby boy. Now, therefore, be careful. means really think through this. Don't drink any wine or strong drink. And don't eat anything not kosher. Don't, don't eat anything outside of the prescribed food in the Levitical law. For behold, you're going to conceive and bear a son. She heard it again. That's twice. So if she's still in a, what, did he really say that? Here he comes again. You're going to conceive. You're going to bear a son. And then he says this, and no haircuts. No razor shall come upon his head. Well, why? Well, here we go. For he shall be, the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall, watch this. Your son, Mrs. Manoah, is going to begin the process of delivering Israel from the oppressive hand of the Philistines. I almost guarantee you, I can't quite guarantee it, but it'd be my guess that Mrs. Manoah's whole life had been Philistine-flavored. She's probably somewhere between 30s and and then 40s. Got to remember, they didn't live as long back then at that time, so that's a little older than it would feel now. And all of a sudden, the bombshell, your boy... The boy you have wanted, the boy you've been praying for, the boy you have been waiting on, the boy you might never have thought would come, he's not only coming, but he's the guy. He's going to be the appointed man from heaven to begin the process of fully breaking the back of the Philistines. That's good news. That's a big shift that just got initiated. By the way, uh, there, there was no Twitter feed to tell her the day before, tomorrow's your day. This is all, boom, in the moment with no outward indication. I just feel the pulse of God on that tonight because I feel like there's some folks in the room tonight or maybe that will hear this later on on TV or or web stream or whatever that you've just kind of given up on something because it's been a long time and it hasn't happened yet. And so every time you pray about it again, you go in and out of that I don't even know why I'm praying about this, but I feel guilty about not praying on it, about it because I don't want to give up on it. And if I don't pray about it, it must mean that I've given up on it. But every time I pray about it and it doesn't happen, the devil shows up and tells me, why am I praying about it? Right? I just got where some of you live, right? I mean, it's, it's the same for all of us. And so this is her moment. Breakthroughs don't always come with a press team ahead of time telling you it's coming then. That's why it's so important just to remain aligned with his heart and just to know, man, he's so good. And when I have no idea what you're doing, God, I have no idea. Listen, do you know that when you don't see what God's doing and you don't understand what God is doing, you are no more vulnerable. You are no, you are not vulnerable. Just because you don't know what he's doing, just because you have no clue when your breakthrough's coming, you are actually not lessened by him in those moments. You're not vulnerable in those moments. Your vulnerability is not connected to not being clued into exactly what God is doing. You're as secure when you don't know as you are when you do know. You may not feel it when you don't know, but you are not vulnerable because you don't understand what God is doing. You're not weak because you don't understand what God is doing. You're not, you're not any less of his child when you don't see what he's doing than you are when you fully understand what he's doing. And so when, when, when we go through those seasons where, I mean, I'm like that, I, you know, I'm, I'm preaching, but I'm, I'm also preaching to me. I want to know what he's doing. 
Now, don't think me, carnal. If God comes to you and says, hey, I'm either going to reveal what I'm doing in your life or, or, or I'm going to cover it up, which do you prefer? You're going to say, hey, most of the time, I, I prefer you to reveal it to me. But when he doesn't, you know what it is, right? It's just, it's, an, it, it's him strengthening our trust. He's revealing our trust of him when we're not clued in, when we don't have a clue what he's doing. He's revealing to us where we are on the trust spectrum. But he's, by doing that, he's building it. Because if you will do what I described earlier, you're just going to get up and you're going to praise him. You're going to be faithful. You're going to continue to be the person that he's called you to be. Um, Mrs. Manoa just reminds us that, hey, God reserves the right at any point to just go ahead and turn that thing in your favor. So let's go a little bit further. Now, let, let me tell you something just in case, because some of you are new to your Bible and we don't talk about you know, a whole lot of stuff from the book of Numbers all the time. But in number six, you're going to find the first 21 verses talk to you about what, what is a Nazarite vow? What, what is that? And it's because the angel of the Lord, the Lord has said in this, your son will be a Nazarite. No wine for you while he is prenatal care from heaven. He just says no wine for you and no cutting his hair. And he's going to be a Nazarite excuse me, from the womb, and the tag on that is he's going to be the deliverer of Israel. So in, in Numbers chapter 6, the first 21 verses, you find out a little bit about what's called a Nazarite vow. Samson's is a little different. There are people that think that he actually wasn't the Nazarite that's revealed in, in Numbers uh, chapter 6, but the word Nazir, which is a Hebrew word from which we get the word Nazarite, is just a word that means separate or consecrated. So a person that took a Nazarite vow is saying unto the God of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to, for a season, consecrate myself unto you. A male could do it. A female could do it. It was entirely voluntary. And in number six, it says, if you are in a place where you want to make a commitment, a, a declaration, a vow of a consecrated season of your life, then you can do it. Ladies, you can do it. Men, you can do it. But when you do that, if you're taking a Nazarite vow, here's what you can't do. You, you can't drink or eat of the fruit of the vine. So that means no wine. It, doesn't, it means they couldn't eat raisins. They couldn't eat grapes during that season. And then it, it's also this. You don't cut your hair. And uh, you can ask God when you get to heaven why he threw that in there. I don't know. But that's part of it. So they don't get to cut their hair. Um, again, it was entirely voluntary. And they couldn't come anywhere near a dead body. And that had to do with ceremonial defilement. So if you're taking a Nazarite vow for a year, if during that year someone you love dies, you don't get to mourn closely. You don't get to be a part of that uh, process of funeral and all of that stuff. So this is different because Samson didn't volunteer for this. It was assigned to him. Now, I want you to just think with me on this for a second because I just, I'm, I'm still the guy who believes God is the same yesterday, today, and evermore. I'm just that guy. And so, when, thank you. When every now and then, it just needs to occur to us because we live in the world where everything's supposed to be fair. And if Johnny gets a trophy, Jimmy gets a trophy. And if Johnny gets this opportunity, Jimmy gets this opportunity. And that's, that's, whatever that is. That's just not God's heart. Now, I understand God's no respecter of persons, but let me tell you, not all of our callings are the same. Not all of our callings are the same. Therefore, not all of the expectation upon our life 
is the same in some specific areas. So what did God do? God looked at the Manoah family and he said, the boy's going to be a Nazarite. Here's what he can and can't. Here's what he will do. Here's what I never want him to do. So some of the times I want you to think about this. Have you ever gone through, um, you're, you're around Christians and certain Christians may have the liberty to engage in X, Y, or Z. You can fill in the blank. You can read Romans 14, Romans 15. It addresses all this stuff. But so certain Christians are, seem to have no scruples about certain things that in your heart you're like, oh, I don't think so. Or maybe you have a liberty that somebody else says, uh, I don't think you should be enjoying that. And you're wondering, what were they coming off judging me? Let, me? let me tell you something just to kind of file. Just go ahead and weave this into you, how you into your relationships in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit, now listen, if the Bible's specific on issues, like where the Bible says this is a sin, this is a sin, this is a sin, this is a sin. If it's a prohibition in Scripture, God doesn't deal with people differently on those things. It's all the same for all of us because it's in his word. It's very clear. But most of these questionable, debatable things are, are not defined in Scripture. Sometimes God will speak clearly and specifically for you, and he'll say, uh-uh, that's not you. Yeah, that's fine for her. That's fine for him. I'm their master. They bow before me. I'm able to make them stand. I got them. Don't look to them because I'm telling you, as my personal son or daughter, I'm telling you, that's not for you. You see, Samson was assigned from the womb a certain expectation from the Lord that would restrict some of the things he was allowed to do. But he was also granted some liberties that nobody else would get to do. Nobody in that generation would be the deliverer. Why am I telling you all of this? Here's why I'm saying it. It's so important that you don't look to anybody else to be the personal barometer about what the Holy Spirit is saying to you in your life. Listen, the word of God is true, but every other person that speaks to you on behalf of God is flawed. They may get it right, but they can get it wrong. And if you are not pressing into the Lord and cultivating the ability to hear the Lord for yourself through the word and through the word, the words that the Holy Spirit will speak to you, then you'll miss these things like this where God is saying, I've got a different purpose and calling for you. Therefore, these things, which are fine for them, are not going to be a part of your life. So, friends, the, the, the practical application of that is, hey, look, don't view people through the lens of you. God may deal with other people. He reserves the right to be as unique with others as he is with you. And so we don't judge others, even though we may not agree and we feel in our heart, man, that's just not something I think is God would bless in my life. Become a student of the word. If the Bible is not explicit on those things, if it doesn't give you a prohibition, a promise, or a principle on it, just turn in your badge and you're like, oh man, I don't have to judge anybody on that. I don't have to be the sheriff. I don't have to make the indictment. And you can get so freed up on that. By the way, that wasn't in the notes. It didn't cost you anything extra. You're welcome. So let me go, let me go in and just get down into this because I'm running out of time. So we've got this interruption, we've got this instruction, but now we're going to look in verse 6 and 7, because who's not yet in the know? Manoah. Manoah is not part of the story up to this point, because it's just God and Mrs. Manoah. And so now the information is going to cascade down to Manoah, and this is somewhat humorous. So the woman comes and tells her husband, 
a man of God, which is a, a description, and she believes she's been in the presence of a prophet, a human prophet. A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I just, I chuckle when I hear that for some reason. I don't know why, but so, so she's saying this amazing, visibly, visually amazing man has come to me, uh, Manoah, and I didn't ask him where he's from, and he did not tell me his name, but hubby, listen to this. Listen to what he said to me. Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And then she adds the instructions, do not drink wine, do not eat unclean food. And Manoah, our boy is going to be a Nazarite unto Yahweh from the day he's conceived to the day of his death. So she is coming home. She's just had a shift initiated on her. Now she's got to go home and tell Manoah. So like most husbands, Manoah's probably thinking, woman, what, where you been? Where did you just come from? What are you talking about? A man of God in a field. You know, there, he's just, he, doesn't have the, he doesn't have the benefit of getting this firsthand information. And I, I don't know why, but all out throughout the book of Judges, you're going to find a frequently repeated pattern of God bypassing men and going straight to women to get his initiated work done. Now, you can do whatever you want with that, but I'll tell you what I do with it. It just reminds me that God intends to use women and will always use women. And there will be times where there will be 100 men and the woman's not plan B, she's plan A. And so he went straight to Mrs. Manoah and, and she's coming home all excited. This is breakthrough day for her. And uh, so she gives her husband the, uh, the information and so he decides he's about to take charge of the whole thing. So look at what he does. Go down into verses 8 through 12, the last little section. He, watch this unfolding expectation in Manoah's heart. It, it, she's planted a seed, but he, he's like most men. He wants the facts. Let's, let's look at this logically, baby. Let's walk through it. So here he goes. So Manoah presses in for a personal word. I like this. Because Manoah's been also wanting a son. Manoah's also been living in this drought in the family. And so look at what he does. Manoah prays to the Lord. I love that his first response is to pray. He gets in the presence of God and he says, oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent. So that, that, that just reveals his faith. He's not doubting it in the sense of, oh my goodness, is this going to happen? And, and he says, let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we're supposed to do with the child that will be born. See, Manoah got the headline, but he is looking for the fine print. He, he's like, okay, baby's coming, all right, but man, I need to know what to do. I got and you know, I don't think this is a bad thing, but he's like a lot of us as men, you know, wife comes in and she just wants to share a moment, it's a happy moment and everything, and dude's like, okay, what do I do? I gotta do something, I gotta make this happen. I gotta, you know, what's my role, what's my responsibility? Barely looks like he got to share the, the moment with her, but he does go and pray, and he's very sincere before God. He's like, Lord, you know, I wasn't in the first meeting. I don't know if you know that or not, but can you send the prophet back so he and I can have a little chat? Can, can, can that happen? So verses 9 and 10. So the angel of the Lord draws out the desire through delay. Now watch this. Manoah's like ready. He's looking out the window. Is the prophet back? Is the prophet back? Is the prophet back? God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman. 
as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, this is how we'd say it, look here, the man, that man is back. The man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. So when it says the other day, there was a space of at least, let's just put two days, at least 48 hours, maybe longer, where Manoah had been praying and waiting, praying and waiting, praying and waiting. That's, that's hard for most of us. She's got this word. She's happy. She's like, no, I was there. I talked to the guy. I know what's going to happen here. And Manoah's just, you know, he's having to live off of the vapor trail of his wife's testimony of encounter with God. And so, so now it's a couple of days later, and the Bible says God answered Manoah's prayer, but Manoah's not with Mrs. Manoah. She says she's out sitting in a field somewhere. I don't know what she's doing, but probably looking for the prophet. And he comes back. And so she takes off, man. She's like, oh, hold on a second. I got to go get my husband. And so she goes quickly and tells her husband, come on, he's here. And so here's where we're going to end off tonight. Manoah says yes to the offer of hope. And man, you do too. You have to say the yes to the offer of hope most of the time before the hope manifests. You have to say yes to it when it's still hope. It's not hope after it happens. It's history. God wants to draw your hope out before it happens. And so he gave Manoah a couple of days to stew. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are are you the man who spoke to this woman? And the Hebrew, his answer is just one word. It's I. Here we have in the English, yeah, I, I am. Um, Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is, what is his mission? Those are the two things she originally came back and said to him. His manner of life is that he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be separated and consecrated at a level that is beyond the norm. He's got a special calling on his life. The manner of his life is that it is to be, according to the will of God, consecrated and separated under the holy purposes of God. Manoah wants to hear it for himself. He wants to make sure. I love this about this man. He's waited so long for a son And now a son is not just going to be granted through natural means. It's coming wrapped in prophecy. It's coming wrapped in destiny. It's coming wrapped in a shift. And so he's like, I got to hear this for myself. What's his manner of life? What's his mission? So let me close. There's so many different ways I could go with this. For those of you that are not yet parents or new parents or your kids are still young. Man, those are super questions to ask, ask the father about your kids. Lord, what's my daughter's manner of life? And Lord, what's her mission? Lord, beyond what she is to me, how do I cooperate with your plan to make sure she becomes who she is to you? A lot of you have raised your kids and a lot of us may not have asked those questions early on and we can't get do-overs unless you got grandkids right grandma right grandpa maybe you didn't have this kind of 
Revelation. But, but, but think about this. When, the, when God brings new life, physical life, into the world, he's got an assignment for that life. I'm a big believer in destiny. Don't make destiny, you know, Hollywood. Don't make destiny, you know, neon and all of this. People think, well, if it's not super cool and, you know, infused with adrenaline and hyped, then it's not really destiny. It's just life. There's not ever been a single human being on earth that didn't have a destiny attached to their life. Now, it gets into the infinite counsel of God in his mind, and we don't always understand that. But I'm going to tell you, God, God doesn't ever do anything arbitrarily. And so when we're thinking about a generation of children, whether it's your children, my children, or grandchildren, or just children, all these kids that were in here tonight, some that are still in here, when, when I look at them and their, their, their full lives, their, their script, their purpose is still in the not yet phase, I'm thinking to myself, God, is there any way that I can be just one of the keys that unlocks a part of that so I can help them along? Let me, let me go ahead and be bold with you, parents, especially those of you who still have children at home. The assignment on your life is not to raise your child to ensure that he or she's the greatest athlete or the most intellectually brilliant or the straight-A student that you can put the bumper sticker on the back of your car about. That's, those things may or may not happen, but that's not, that's not what you're about as a mom or a dad. It's, it's, listen, when you're raising daughters, the, the call of God is not for you to have and cultivate and work hard at having a little princess be the prettiest one in her class every year. It, it's not to make sure your kids are um, exposed to the fineries of the American culture and always get the best and always do the best and, and always reveal the best by who they are. It's not that they'll have the best job. It's not that they'll be first in, those are, in, the, in and of themselves, those are carnal, temporary pursuits. Do you know what our job is as adults with our kids, our grandkids, and other kids? It's to say, Father, give me revelation and wisdom concerning the manner of their life and the mission you have for them. That's what Manoah asked. So when we look at our kids and they're trying their hardest and they're a B-minus student and they're giving it their best, I hope you're celebrating the B-minus or the C. I hope when they bat eighth on the team and they have struck out six plate appearances in the row, I hope that in those moments, that, that that doesn't become their identity to you. Because guess what? If, if, they're, if, if they're not excelling at that sport, it's probably not God's mission for them to be in the major leagues. D do you follow me on this? I'm just saying, hey, let's raise our expectations to where they are kingdom expectations on our kids. So if, if, they're, if they're average looking or less than average looking, that's not who they are. That's their physical appearance. We've got to tap in what they have, what God has done. We are literally mining out gold in, in the next generation. And we do that a decision at a time. So when we come back to the story of the Manoas and little boy Samson, 
he comes in actually in two messages. So next Wednesday, I'll show you why I know this is God and not just an angel of God. Is that cool? All right, let's stand together. Man, I made it with a minute to spare. Glory. So pray for the children in your life that are the most important to you right now. Don't make it complicated. Lord, show us the manner of life for the children that are most important to us. Help us to know their mission. Help us not to make the mission we didn't do with our lives be laid upon the backs of our children so that we raise them to live the life we, we failed to live. Help us not to consume our kids on our own dreams. Just give us wisdom, Lord. Thank you that even tonight, Lord, you're just initiating some shifts in lives in this room right now. I thank you that you have encouraged their faith and they're going to wait on you and they're going to celebrate who you are even in the midst of the answer not being here yet. God, I believe the best things you'll ever do in my life are ahead of me. I believe that for this congregation, that literally the best work, experience, and revelation you will ever attach to our life is not yesterday's, but somewhere tomorrow or after. And so I thank you that you're a God who has great things in store. In Jesus' name, amen.